I want you to open up to Deuteronomy chapter 8. That's where we'll be this morning. And while you're doing that, I'd like to take a little informal poll. Has this ever happened to you? You walk into a room and you forget why you're there. Has that ever happened to anybody? Raise your hand. How about when you go to the grocery store? Anybody ever driven to the grocery store and you get there and you forget why you drove there? Yes. Or Home Depot. Yes, absolutely. Which bolt was it I was getting? How about uh, when your spouse asks you to go to the store, whether it be Home Depot or the grocery store, and you get there and you remember the first thing on the list, but you forgot all the other five things. Anyone do that? And then you trust yourself and you realize, man, I should have written those down. Here's the kicker. This is my favorite one. How many of you put your sunglasses on your forehead and then walk all around all of your house looking for your sunglasses? Anyone ever do that? Kelly, raise your hand. (laughs) Included that one just for my wife. Okay. It's frustrating, is it not? When you're like, oh my goodness, I can't remember. When I was in my 20s, I felt like I had a steel trap as a memory. And then as I get older, it now seems like a rusted steel sieve. Things start to go through and it's very frustrating. I remember a few years ago, one of our kids came up to us and they wanted to talk to us and tell us something, probably the latest quote from, you know, Boss Baby or Daniel Tiger or Star Wars or something. And they were standing there very faithfully waiting and and we were talking and we said, hold on a second, we're having an adult conversation, just wait a second. And by the time they got to speak, they realized that they'd forgotten the quote they were going to say and they got really frustrated. Have any of you with little kids ever have that happen? Yeah. And I, I thought in that moment, I remember thinking, why are you so frustrated? But then I realized I do that all the time. I forget and I get frustrated about what I, losing what I was thinking about. Well, this morning, our text will discuss the topics of forgetfulness and remembrance. Specifically, it will discuss remembering or forgetting the Lord our God. And if anything should get us passionate about forgetting or remembering something, it shouldn't be a quote from a movie or a grocery list. It should be this topic of forgetting the Lord that has created us and redeemed us. It should be a a realization that the byproduct of remembering the Lord is fruitfulness and peace and joy. And that the byproduct of forgetting the Lord is often a slow but sure death and maybe even sometimes immediate destruction. So let's begin by taking a look there at Deuteronomy 8. And I'm going to read through just the first 10 verses of it. And I'm going to talk about what the, or first 11 verses, excuse me. I'm going to talk about what it is that the the Lord is trying to remind us through the words of Moses here. It says in verse 1, The whole commandment that I command you today, you shall be careful to do. We've heard this a few times in Deuteronomy, have we not? The whole commandment, remember it. That you may live and multiply and go in and possess the land that the Lord swore to give to your fathers. And you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. And he humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Your clothing did not wear out on you, and your foot did not swell these forty years. Know then in your heart that as a man disciplines his son, the Lord your God disciplines you. So you shall keep the commandments of the Lord your God by walking in his ways and by fearing him. For the Lord your God is bringing you into a good land, a land of brooks, of water, of fountains and springs flowing out in the valleys and hills, a land of wheat and barley, of vines and fig trees and pomegranates, a land of olive trees and honey, a land in which you will eat bread without scarcity, in which you will lack nothing, a land whose stones are iron and out of whose hills you can dig copper. And you shall eat and be full, and you shall bless the Lord your God for the good land he has given you. Take care, lest you forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments and his rules and his statutes, which I command you today. And we'll continue on uh, in the rest of the service here. But if you're taking down notes, you can write down that Moses is asking something very simple and yet very complex from God's people. And that's for us today just as much as it was for them. And you can write this down. This is what he's saying. In pain or in prosperity, remember the Lord your God. In pain or in prosperity, remember the Lord your God. Our readers this morning, uh, Lauren and Julie, helped prepare our hearts from Psalm 78. And in that text, the psalmist Asaph implores God's people to remember all that the Lord had done. 
to truly remember all that the Lord had done. Not just by having these fantastic stories that are siloed and separated. Hey, remember the one? I think sometimes we often read the Bible like the Friends episodes, right? You guys remember Friends, any of you that are old enough? They would title those episodes, the one with the, and then the rest of the plot line. Well, that's how we sometimes teach the Bible. The one with the, you know, the, the Red Sea parting. Uh, the one with the Ehud and Eglon where he stabs him. You know, that one, right? And we don't have this story of this, this narrative con- connection of all the stories that God is trying to tell us about his power and about his fantastic plan of salvation. I think it's wonderful how many believers love books like C.S. Lewis and the Narnia series and J.R.R. Tolkien and, and his uh, Lord of the Rings series. And even Star Wars, right? Now, I know we shouldn't equate Star Wars with Tolkien or Lewis, but I think if we're not careful, I find that we can easily present our children and even ourselves with a belief that the stories of the Exodus and the wilderness wanderings and even the Gospels themselves uh, are kind of like the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. You know, those fantastic stories that, well, we all kind of know they didn't happen. And if we're not careful, that's what we hand our kids. The reality is, is we actually talk about this. Pretty much every time we, talk, we watch Star Wars with the, the boys, I tell them, hey guys, remember, all this, totally fake. Remember the Bible? Totally real. And it's important because I don't want them confusing lightsabers with Moses' staff. I want them to know that what the Lord has done is true and real. And it's just separated from us by time. God did these things. And he showed his wonderful glory and power. And so we can look at Psalms like 78 and other places in the Bible and use them as companion narratives over the life of the people of God. And they can act as mirrors for us in which we see our own depravity just like the Israelites, that we too forget the Lord, that we too step away from God and disobey his commandments. But we can also see in Psalm 78 that God is good and that even in the midst of our rebellion and our forgetfulness, God is our redeemer. He is our rock. He is the one who has compassion for us because we are, at the end of the day, nothing but flesh. And so he provides for us in an amazing way. And in recognizing this, in recognizing this story of the depravity of man and the goodness of God, we reorient our minds to the truth and the fact that he is always, always has been, always will be, the source of provision. He's the source of provision for daily life, and he is the source of provision for redemption. Amen? He's the source of life today, and the breath we take, and he's the source of life eternally as he prepares a place that we might live with him forever. We see this right in our text this morning. The first 10 verses here, the first thing they tell us is this. You can write this down. The Lord alone is provider. The Lord alone is provider. I find this is very hard in our current day. You know, it was interesting last summer when the water crisis happened and all of a sudden it wasn't raining from heaven and I started to read the story of Ahab and the drought a little bit differently. It was a little bit more real. We have this water source and the water source is corrupted. And luckily we have someone in the body who's very wise in the ways of water. She's a great scientist. I won't embarrass her by saying her name, but She was saying, yeah, I'm not going to drink the water for a few months. And so I was thinking, oh man, this is a bad deal. Can you imagine if God suddenly shut up the heavens? Well, we just truck it in from another place. We can figure out a way around it. Well, what if God shut up the heavens for the entire earth? All of a sudden, mankind would finally realize once again that God alone is our provider. We can have as many logistical things as we want. And at the end of the day, we have one provider. And it is not Roths or Kmart or Walmart. As big as Walmart is, it is not Walmart. As big as Amazon is, it is not Amazon. We have one provider. And so Moses reminds the people, remember that God is your provider and remember all that he's done. And not just bits and pieces. Don't remember just pieces of what God's done. Look at verse two again. He says, you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you. It was funny the other day during family devotions, I was reading through and, and the boys said, hey, can we, can we pause? Because we're going through Deuteronomy, right? And for eight-year-olds, Deuteronomy is kind of like, well, let's be honest, it's kind of boring, right? And, and so they said, hey, can we, can we read a, a, a story, like a different story? And I said, sure, I'll, I'll give you a different story. Let's read the story of Elijah. And they said, who? And I went, oh my goodness. And I realized that in you know, their eight years, I, I haven't read them certain pieces of the Bible. Well, 
that's to be understood because they're eight years old and, you know, they've got some time and, and it takes some time to read the whole Bible. But it made me think, oh my goodness, this integral part of the story, I need them to understand it. We need to understand the whole way that God has led us. Remember that that's the whole point of the Pentateuch, of the first five books of the Bible. The first five books or the Pentateuch, everybody say Pentateuch. Okay, the five scrolls, the five books of the Bible, first five books of the Bible, they were primarily written by Moses with some later additional scribal entries and notes. But within the core writings of Moses, many scholars agree that he had two points and two purposes. And I'll give these two to you. If you want to, you can write them down. The first one was to give the Israelites an identity and an understanding of who they were and who God is, who Yahweh is specifically, not just some random God, but Yahweh. They needed an identity as they went into the land of Canaan. And so the main reason for the first five books of the Bible was to remind them, the Israelites, who they were as they entered through the eastern border of Canaan. To remind them who they were in regards to their rebellious parents and that they needed to be different. To remind them of what was expected of them as they partnered with Yahweh to bring his truth into the land of Canaan and to subdue in the name of Yahweh. And at the core of that was the reminder of who Yahweh is, what his character and plan is, that he alone is the provider and source of life for his people. Now we'll come back to that here in a quick second. But secondly, the point of the Pentateuch was to point the Israelites to their need for God to not only provide daily life, but also an atoning sacrifice, a sacrifice that would cover their sins once for all. We tend to look at the Old Testament and the Pentateuch and, and think, well, they didn't know they needed a sacrifice yet. Oh, no, they totally knew. And so we'll see as we read through the rest of Deuteronomy that Moses says, hey, y'all need a better prophet than me. Hey, y'all need a better sacrifice than the one we do on Yom Kippur. Hey, y'all need a series of festivals throughout the year so that you understand we're all looking towards something that will atone for our sin. The whole point of the Pentateuch and really the Old Testament was to point beyond the current covenant to a new covenant through God's redemptive Messiah. And we'll see both of them today, both of these goals uh, today. But going back to the first reason, reminding Israel of who they were and who Yahweh is as their provider, as they went into Canaan, we, we need to refresh our memories about who they thought God was. So turn with me to Genesis 1, a great place to start. Go back to Genesis 1. And I want to show you Genesis 1 in maybe a little bit of a different view than many of us as American Western Christians view Genesis 1. I think we've been trained, especially in the last 50 or 60 years, to view Genesis 1 as this science textbook, uh, that this is our place we go for apologetics to fight against the idea of evolution, which I don't really think needs to even be fought against. Um, but Genesis 1 wasn't written for that. Moses didn't sit down with the task of, let me disprove secular scientists in 2019. That was not why he wrote it. Why he wrote it was to remind the people of who they were and who Yahweh was as they went into a land that was primarily worshiping Baal and other fertility gods. And so let me give you an example right off the bat of what, what he was actually doing. In Genesis 1.1, you have this in the, in the English. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In the Hebrew, it is this. Bereshit bara Elohim et hashamayim va'et ha'eretz. Okay? Now that last part, the part that you see there on the second row all the way to the left, ha'eretz. Okay? Everybody say ha'eretz. That means uh, land. Okay? It can be used to talk about earth, but not earth in this fashion. This would have been unknown to the Hebrews. They would have looked at this and gone, what is that? Okay? Now, all of us, we think that this is what Moses had in mind when he wrote Genesis 1.1. But this is not, when it says earth, what he was thinking of. And the reason is, is because the Hebrews had no understanding of this. And so what he was thinking of is another way that you can translate it. You can translate it, ha-eretz, as land. He was thinking of, in the beginning... God created what's up there and what's before us down here. And primarily, the Jews were looking at this as they were on the eastern border about to go into Canaan, and they were thinking of the land. Guess where Hebrews think of when you say the land? They don't think of Oregon. Where do they think of? Canaan, Israel, the land that God had prepared for them since the beginning of time. And so even here in Genesis 1.1, the whole point of what 
Moses is trying to say to Israel is, guys, just like God has prepared a land for you, God is the preparer of land for his people. He prepared a land for Adam and Eve. And church history tells us that they primarily, the early church believed that this section was actually in Israel. You can still go to Israel and see paintings of the idea that Israel was here in Genesis 1, and Israel is the place where uh, the Israelites were meant to go in and inhabit. And so even if you read uh, Israeli newspapers, there's an Israeli newspaper called Haaretz, the land. Well, it's not talking about this. It's not talking about what's going on here. It's talking about what's going on in the land of Israel, okay? So the idea of Genesis 1 as a science textbook, you got to just throw it out. That's, stop fighting with evolutionists. It just makes us look bad in their eyes. Instead, realize that it was written to tell people, hey guys, God is preparing a land for you and he is the provider. Does that make sense? Now, if we look at the rest of chapter one, what does it say? It says how God populated the waters with fish, how God populated the sky with birds, how God po- populated the land with vegetables. And what was the point? That it was all good because it was God's plan to be the provider. Everybody say provider. Your God is your provider. Look at Genesis 1, uh, 29 through 31 here. Uh, This says that God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food and to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the heavens and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life. I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made. And behold, it wasn't just good. It was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. The whole point of Genesis 1 was to tell the people of Israel, guys, your God's got you. He's your provider. He's prepared a land for you. He's going to help you. And he's going to sustain you. And he's going to give you what is needed. He's got the outline of what is good and what is evil. And we need to trust him. But even more so, he was not just the provider of physical provision and relational provision, but Yahweh was also the one that would provide for a solution to the problem of mankind's rebellion. Our rebellion against him. And the fact that even though he's our provider, we view him as something different. We become traitors against him, aligning with the enemy of God, criticizing him and telling him he doesn't know what he's doing. For this, he would provide an atoning sacrifice. And we see this as Genesis develops and starts to tell us who God is. Turn to Genesis 22 with me. Look at Genesis 22. This is the story of Abraham and Isaac and Abraham going to sacrifice his son Isaac. In this story, God has selected Abram and made him Abraham, renamed him, the father of many nations. And Abraham has been asked by God to do this very odd thing. You remember the story. God asked Abraham to do what the other pagan worshipers of false gods would do in Canaan, to take their child and go and sacrifice them to the fertility gods on a high mountain so that God would give fertility to them and their land. This is what the Canaanites did. The worshipers of Baal and Asheroth, they would take their newborn babies and sacrifice them so that God would bless them with prosperity. And so this was not an odd thing. As much as we look at it and go, oh, that's horrific, which we should. This was not an odd thing in the land of Canaan. And so God is funny here in a sense because he's setting Abraham up. He never intends to actually sacrifice Isaac. So Abraham in Genesis 22 begins to do just this. He takes his son Isaac, probably a young man in his early to late teens at this point, to the top of Mount Moriah to sacrifice him. But this God, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, he's different than the Canaanite gods. And he's going to use this to test Abraham, but also to show who he is. He does not require allegiance through unrighteous sacrifice. He requires allegiance through trust in Yahweh's righteousness. And so take a look there at Genesis 22, verse 9. When they, Abraham and Isaac, came to the place which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Now, what's interesting here, guys, is that both of them are being voluntarily allegiant to Yahweh. He's strong enough to have carried wood on his back up the mountain, which means he's strong enough to take Abraham at this point, because Abraham was not a spring chicken, okay? He could easily take an old man, right? And so here, he lets him bind him up, and he lays down on the altar. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. 
But the angel of the Lord, of Yahweh, called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, Yahweh will provide, the Lord will provide. Remember, L-O-R-D, all caps, behind that is the name Yahweh. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. Yahweh does not disappoint. You see, from our cultural standpoint, like I said, this is grotesque, but from his, it was common. And so, it was as if God is saying, Abraham, I'm going to test you to see if you will follow me to the same level as your neighbors will follow their false gods. But then, in the midst of that, God shows Abraham that he is completely different than these other false gods. In that process of testing, Abraham gets to understand Yahweh better. And what is it that Abraham calls him in response? He calls him the Lord that provides. You guys may have heard it as Jehovah Jireh before, or Yahweh Yireh. In the Hebrew, this is what it means. The Lord will provide, Yahweh Yireh. He will give sacrifice. He will provide. In this story and in all of the Pentateuch, God not only shows himself as the provider, but he holds himself up to the other gods of the Canaanites and says, Look, guys, I'm not an unrighteous God requiring your unrighteous acts to appease me. I am a righteous God, holy and different than any other false idol. I am one that will provide for you, not the other way around. He's saying, I don't need anything. I will instead give everything. Yahweh is a completely different God than any false God we can make up. And this beautiful story points the Israelites forward to the fact that while God called Abram to hold back his son from death, one day God himself would provide his son, his only son, as it says right here in verse 16, to atone not only for Abram's sin and Isaac's sin, but also your sin and mine. He would provide his son his only son, so that we could be redeemed from our rebellion against God, redeemed from the fact that we often forget our provider, even though the Father has given his son Jesus to provide redemption for us. And so this is the view that Moses wants the Israelites to understand as they go into the land that God has provided for them. This is your God, Israel. And brothers and sisters of mission, this is your God. A God that we so often forget because we think that we provide for ourselves. We think that the supermarket we go to provides our food. We think that we are the ones that earn our salary. We think that we are the ones that put a roof over our head. In all cases, God is the only provider. Amen? And so throughout the Pentateuch, they're learning this and understanding this. Well, let's go back to Deuteronomy 8. And now that we understand that Moses is trying to get across the point that the Lord alone is provider, let's take a look and see what Moses' cry to the people here is in verse 11. We started to read it, and now we'll continue on. He says in verse 11, Take care lest you forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments and his rules and his statutes, which I command you today. Lest when you have eaten and are full and have built good houses and live in them, and when your herds and flocks multiply and your silver and gold is multiplied and all that you have is multiplied, or you get a brand new church building that looks really nice. Oh, sorry, that's in the Hans version. Verse 14, then your heart may be lifted up and you forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, who led you through the great and terrifying wilderness with its fiery serpents and scorpions and thirsty ground where there was no water, who brought you water out of the flinty rock, who fed you in the wilderness with manna that your fathers did not know, that he might humble you and test you to do you good in the end. Beware lest you say in your heart, My power and the might of my hand have gotten me this wealth. You shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you power to get wealth, that he may confirm his covenant that he swore to your fathers as it is this day. And if you forget the Lord your God and go after other gods and serve them and worship them, I solemnly warn you today that you shall surely perish. Like the nations that the Lord makes to perish before you, so shall you perish because you would not obey the voice of the Lord. 
We see Moses' cry here. Second thing you can write down is this point. Take care lest you forget the Lord's provision. Take care lest you forget the Lord's provision. Dear church, isn't it interesting how easily we forget the Lord? I mean, how many times do you or I get to the end of a day or a week? Or maybe it's even Saturday night and you're crawling into bed and you think to yourself, oh, it's church tomorrow. And then it dawns on you, man, I haven't thought of Christ since last Sunday. That ever happened to you? So easy to do. We are prone to forgetfulness. And it's not just because of our errant cognitive faculties, right? It's not just because our brains are rusty steel sieves. It's because our hearts long to be independent from God in rebellion. Or maybe it's because we don't trust the Lord because he doesn't do things the way we would do. Or we think that maybe we're not enough of value to him, and so we're a burden, and so we don't trust that he will provide for us even though he provides for others. Or maybe it's any other number of reasons. Our text gives us an even more distinct definition of what it is to then forget the Lord. In verse 11, we see that to forget the Lord is to let go of our need for him and our desire to obey him. It's to remove him from the place of God. Isn't it interesting that humanity knows innately, every single human on the planet knows that if there's a thing called God, then you kind of do what he says because he's bigger than you, right? But how quickly we forget in our own independence and rebellion that, no, I think I'm God and I'm the one that I should obey. What's even more interesting is that we forget in both prosperity and in pain. You ever notice that? You can look at this section of scripture and see it is written to discuss this idea of pain, testing in the wilderness, and of prosperity going into the land. It's written in the fashion of what's called a chiasm. Everybody say chiasm. This is used all throughout ancient Near East literature as well as in uh, Greek literature, and you'll see it a ton throughout the Bible. If you're ever reading a section like chapter 8, and you're like, okay, he talked about the manna before, and he talked about the manna at the bottom. He says, follow the commands before and follow the commands at the bottom. It's not just that he's being repetitive. He's actually writing in a way that's to direct your eyes. A chiasm is usually formed in a way like this. You guys, some of you have heard this before. A, B, C, B, A. And where does it direct your eyes? You got A and B pointing to the middle. Where does it direct your eyes? C. And so if you were to break this apart, this text would look something like this. Testing in the wilderness? Testing in the promised land. Do not forget your God. And the two ideas of testing in both The wilderness, pain, and in the promised land, prosperity, they point us to the idea of in either, don't forget the Lord and his place in your life. Well, the first, pain. Pain being tested in the wilderness is the easy one to excuse our forgetfulness, isn't it? I'm in pain. I I shouldn't have to be held to an account, we we say to ourselves. We become so overwhelmed with hurt and sadness that we can't see the light of hope anymore. It was in the pain and fear that the earlier generation of Israelites stood before the land of Canaan and said, oh man, we're so small. These people will destroy us. God has brought us here to be destroyed. It was in pain they said we can't go in. And Caleb cried out and said to them, guys, we can do it. God has been with us. Have you not heard the stories? Have you not seen what God has done? Why now are you not following him? But in their pain, they said, oh, God won't provide. This is different. It was in the pain of hunger here in Deuteronomy 8 that our our minds are brought back to the idea that they said, oh man, God's brought us out here to kill us. We're going to starve to death when we had the leeks and the melons in Egypt. You ever think about that? They didn't say we had the steak in Egypt, right? We had something substantial. We had leeks and melons. How many of you have ever gone on a leeks and melons diet? Right? You'll, You'll lose weight really fast. But even their memory was swayed. They were in slavery, and yet they remembered it fondly, even though their stomachs weren't filled with leeks and melons. Because in their pain, they twisted and contorted the truth and said, God won't provide for us. In pain, we often forget God because we can think that maybe he's asleep at the wheel. Or maybe that our wrong expectations, they cause us to doubt his goodness. Because if God were good, then this wouldn't be happening. 
Or maybe even we doubt his existence because there's so much pain in the world. How can a good God let it all happen? But all of these things, uh, they're putting ourselves in the place of God and we're in fact testing his goodness rather than looking at the fullness, the whole way of his story. And so we easily forget God in the midst of pain. That ever happened to you? Midst of pain, you start to wonder if there is a provider. But here in Deuteronomy, we see that we can also forget God in the midst of prosperity. That is what Moses is warning against here. Israel was about to enter a land of promise and provision. It's about as good as you can get it. If you read verses 7 through 10 again, man, it's got everything you'd ever want. But we, we look around at our homes and our cars, our church, building, our, our families, our prosperity, and we think, oh, look at how blessed I am. Look at what my hands have gained me. We are in awe of our self-made success. We can begin to mistake our earthly wealth and prosperity for God's agreement that how we are living is righteous. I personally think this is one of the reasons that American Christians have dwindled in their fervor and their passion for the Lord is because we have confused the fact that we are the richest people in the history of the world with the idea that God is pleased with us. We have confused the idea that because we're wealthy, then God obviously must like how we're living. But that's not true, guys. That's using an external filter outside of the word of God to prove whether or not we are obedient. Just because a child is spoiled does not mean they're a child that is obedient to their parents. Amen? And so we must realize that if we want a filter from which we can test if God is good, and we can test whether or not we're obedient, we have one and one only, and it's this book that you're holding in your hands. This tells us that God is good, and this tells us what the idea of obedience is and whether or not we are following it. We need to use this filter, the truth of his word and the gospel, rather than our own external circumstances. And so we need to live with his wisdom and his commands. Otherwise, we may wake up one day in the midst of material wealth and wonder why our walk is so far from the Lord. In both pain and prosperity, our hearts are tested. I think we have a tendency to think we're being tested in pain, but not in prosperity. Guys, I would suggest to you that biblically, prosperity actually might be the harder test. It's in prosperity that we have to ask ourselves, do I still believe in the provider or have I brought that title upon myself? Look at what this text tells us about how good God is even in the midst of that. In the midst of prosperity or pain, God doesn't leave us to ourselves. He does two things. First, he tests us. And then, if he needs to, he disciplines us. In Deuteronomy 8.2, it says that he tested the Israelites. Now, we hate this word. For some reason, the English word, we hate this word because we think, how terrible is God that he would test us? It's as if he set up a course for us and he made it impossible to get through so that he could point at us and laugh. That's often how we think of the word test. But the theological workbook of the Old Testament says this. It says, the rendering tempt is often put in place. And, but it generally means prove, test, put to the test. It means to check what's at the core, to search deep into our heart and see what's there rather than the current English idea of enticing to do wrong. We tend to look at painful trials and think that God is tempting us, not testing us, tempting us to do wrong, to curse him, to fight him. But church, in all things, pain or prosperity, God is actually just simply asking, child, where's your heart? Pain or prosperity, that's what he's asking. He's asking, to whom do you turn for provision and comfort? And this testing, dear church, is actually a massive blessing because it is in that testing that we are able to correct our path and walk in repentance. It's kind of like this. I don't know a husband or a wife that likes to have their spouse come to him and say, honey, I think I need to talk with you. I don't know a spouse who goes, all right, this is going to be a good day, right? No, it's probably going to be a rough conversation. There's that certain intonation and that certain context where you think, oh boy, what do I do now, right? But the reality is, is we can either view that as, oh boy, what do I do now? Versus 
the right way to look at it of, oh, something's off course. This is going to be a great opportunity to correct it. And then we thank our spouses. We don't think of them as a nag. We don't think of them as a problem. We go, oh, this is awesome. They want to connect more with me. And the same thing is true with God. He comes to us and he says, hey, I want to test you. Where's your heart, child? Not because he wants to beat you up for it, but he wants to say, are you close to me? Because he knows the best thing for us is to be close to him. So this is why the mature Christian, the mature man or woman that has a heart after God, cries out just like David did in Psalm 139. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there be any grievous way in me. And lead me in the way everlasting. You see, I know when my heart is far from the Lord because I don't even want to pray this. I already know what he'll find. When this prayer is already on my lips, I'm usually in a good spot. It's never to test to prove whether we are good enough for his love. Pain or prosperity instead become testing grounds to see the state of our heart and allow the Lord to correct it. And this is why in Deuteronomy 8.5, Moses says, remember that God loves you as children. And so when you begin to forget, when you wander off path, the Lord will lovingly discipline you to bring you back to him. Because guys, remember, our earthly fathers sometimes have made mistakes and turned discipline into a kind of punishment. But good discipline, true discipline, godly discipline is always training. It's training to get you back on the right path, not punishment for the sake of punishment. And so the writer of Hebrews knows that we will be lovingly disciplined. And so he writes this. This is in Hebrews 12, 7. He takes this idea from Deuteronomy 8 and he captures it in, uh, in Hebrews 12. This is 12, 7 through 11. The writer of Hebrews says, It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons or daughters. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. In other words, if you find yourself on the wrong path and God's letting you go down it, that's not a good thing, folks. You're probably a little bit too far already. He says, besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. You see, in the midst of pain or prosperity, we can catch ourselves and be convicted by the Holy Spirit that our heart is far from God and in pain that we have dismissed him and we don't trust him, in prosperity that we have made ourselves our own provider. And God's discipline is gracious in order to bring us back to the understanding that we need him as our provider. Dear brothers and sisters, Moses' word to his people and to us is the same. Whether in pain or in prosperity, we must always take care to remember the Lord. If in prosperity, we must remember that he is the Father who gives good gifts, that all good gifts come from him. If in pain, we must remember that we live in the midst of a broken world. And he is not the source of the pain, but has instead sent his comforter, the Holy Spirit, to walk us through it and use it as discipline to move us back into a life of concert with him and the way that he is operating. And when we forget this, we must desire loving correction that brings us back to him as the provider and source of life. I think it is our worship of comfort that distorts our view and causes us to believe that a life well lived is only one with prosperity. In fact, a life well lived will be full of both pain and prosperity, but through it all, we will remain close to our provider thanking him for whatever comes our way. Now, that's pretty hard to do, isn't it? How many of you have had those moments in the depths of pain where you can't get the thank you, Lord, out because it is so painful? You might say this morning, Hans, that's just not me. I often forget the Lord. Your words are convicting because I recognize that throughout my week, I forget my provider often. You might even say, Hans, I'm more like the Israelites than I want to admit. Well, dear saints, perhaps the psalmist Asaph was thinking of you 
when he reminded us of this truth this morning from our reading earlier. Their heart was not steadfast toward him. They were not faithful to his covenant. Yet he, God, being compassionate, atoned for their iniquity and did not destroy them. He restrained his anger often and did not stir up all his wrath. He remembered that they were but flesh, a wind that passes and comes not again. Dear brother or sister, if you forget the Lord because of pain or prosperity, I think the Lord wants to remind you of this today. You can write this down. In spite of our forgetfulness, the Lord is still gracious to provide. In spite of our forgetfulness, the Lord is still gracious to provide. To read the Old Testament is almost to read an exercise in futility. What the rest of the Old Testament from Genesis on shows is that Israel has a history of forgetting. As you read into the story of the kings, you see King Solomon forgetting many of these commands and his heart is slowly turned by his pagan wives to worship the fertility gods of the surrounding nations. And then king after king then falls into the same trap until the whole nation is worshiping Baal and Ashtaroth. And in the midst of their very own temple courtyard, they're erecting pagan statues. And if we are honest, each and every one of us here, we forget to the same level too. Whether it be pain or prosperity, stress or schedule, anxiety or feelings of guilt and shame that overwhelm us, we wake up one day and find idols sitting in the midst of the temple of our very own hearts. We forget the Lord our God often, do we not? Dear church, what I want to remind you of today is that there's good news for those of us who forget. There's good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That God the Father knows that we are but dust, so he sent a Redeemer. The Father God sent his Son, the Messiah, Jesus Christ, to redeem us. And he could do what we could not. Jesus could remember in the midst of hunger and pain and isolation, in the places where we could not do it, he did it. He remained true, and his trust and remembrance of the Father was everlasting. You see, a couple thousand years after Moses uttered these words to the Israelites in Deuteronomy 8, Jesus of Nazareth showed up in the same land and was put to the same test as Israel. And yet, he did not forget his provider like you and I so often do. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 4, and we'll see what I mean. Matthew chapter 4. Give me an amen like you love Jesus when you reach Matthew chapter 4. Amen. There we go. Matthew chapter 4, verse 1. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness. Sound familiar? Deuteronomy. To be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. Can you imagine? I can go about 40 minutes. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But Jesus answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Now church, you may have read that before, but hopefully this morning you're gaining a little bit of understanding of the context. You see, Jesus was saying more than this one line. In the Hebrew mindset, you would quote scripture in order to remind those listening of everything before and after that one scripture. And interestingly, Jesus only quotes half of even a sentence. He's quoting from Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 3, where it says, And he humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, bread, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know that God might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of Yahweh. Immediately after being baptized, and beginning his ministry in righteousness, Jesus was driven here into the wilderness of Judea to undergo a period of 40 days of fasting and temptation. 
The author of Matthew is helping us to see that Jesus was in all points tempted as Israel was, yet without sin. He fulfilled what Israel could not. He fulfilled what you and I could not. He fulfilled what Adam and Eve could not. You see, in the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve were tempted with hunger and they fell. There in the wilderness, Israel was tempted with hunger and they fell. And often you and I are tempted with hunger every day in one way or another. And we look not to our provider, but to ourselves. In all cases, we forget who we are in relation to the Lord. But Jesus, but Jesus, when he was tempted with hunger, when he was tempted with abusing his authority and removing God and placing himself there, what he did was he recalled to mind Deuteronomy 8. And in the context of Deuteronomy 8, he remembered that Moses was making the point that man cannot exist on the sustenance of bread without also existing in relationship with the one who has commanded its very existence by the power of his word. We might think, Hans, what's the big deal? Eat the bread. But you see, there is something more sinister going on here. Satan is not just trying to help him ease his hunger pains. Satan is tempting Christ not to just abuse his power for his own good, but he was tempting Jesus to forget Yahweh Yira, the Lord, our provider. And Jesus did what you and I could never do. He stayed holy and completely true to the Father. He never forgot the Lord. And so when the time came for you and I to be judged and found wanting in this way, Jesus then was able to offer himself up on the cross of Calvary as a spotless sacrifice, never having sinned in the way you and I do. He was offered up in our place, provided as a sacrifice. He was the one who lived the life that we never could have lived. And in so doing, Jesus atoned for our sin and became the very bread of life, a bread that no one before or after had known a bread that came directly from the mouth of Yahweh. In Jesus Christ, God graciously provided a bread that would not only sustain us, but would redeem us from the very sin of our rebellion. Just as God provided manna in spite of the Israelites' lack of trust and testing of God. The Father provided His only Son to you and I in spite of the fact that we forget Him daily. And then three days later, Jesus rose from the grave, proving that he had destroyed the power of our sinful hearts. And he ascended into heaven and poured out the Holy Spirit into our lives so that we too could live in newness of life, growing in our ability each day to take care and remember the Lord, our God, the Lord, our provider, that God is good towards us. Amen. And so, dear brothers and sisters, when Satan tempts you to do evil, When Satan tempts you to complacency or tempts you to forget the Lord this week by simple busyness or stress, or maybe Satan even tries to condemn you in your failure to remember the Lord, I want you to recall to mind the cross. I want you to recall to mind the fact that even though we are but dust, God provided a redeemer. He provided an atonement. I want you to recall to mind that God loved you and I so much that he made a way for us to stay in connection and in relationship with him despite our sin of often forgetting the one who provides for us. You see, in Hebrew tradition, when they would break bread before a meal, they would say, Blessed are you, Lord our God, King of the universe, who brings forth bread from the earth. And when they would drink of the cup of wine, they would say, Blessed are you, Lord our God, king of the universe, who creates the fruit of the vine. As we begin our time of response in worship to the fact that God has provided for not only our logistical needs, our practical needs, but also our redemptive needs, we're going to take from the table of communion a piece of bread and a cup of juice that symbolizes his blood. And we're going to remember the one who said, I am the bread of life, whoever eats of me and believes of me and follows me will not ever hunger again. We're going to remember the one who said, I am the fruit of the vine. Whoever partakes in me will never thirst again. And so we're going to take time to remember Christ and all that he has done for us. 
And dear church, that is why we meet as often as we do. I think the Lord knows me. And he knows that seven days is a pretty big stretch for me to continue to remember the Lord. And this is why the Bible tells us that each of us, each of us should continue to help one another to recall the deeds of the Lord, to remember his goodness and to follow after him. I don't know about you, but I need reminders. And dear brothers and sisters, you are my divine sticky notes. And you are sticky notes for one another. You are the reminder that God is good and he has provided for us. And I want to encourage you to help one another remember the Lord, our provider. And then I want to give you one practical thing this week to do, one challenge. I want to challenge you to pray prayers of thanksgiving to the one who has provided so much for you. Do it with your roommates, with your families, by yourself. It's so interesting how we often forget to even say thank you before our meals. Guys, the reason that it is tradition for followers of Yahweh, followers of Jesus Christ, to give thanks before a meal is to do this very thing. It's to obey Deuteronomy 8, to say, blessed are you, Lord our God. This bread comes from you. Blessed are you, Lord our God. This drink comes from you. But I want to Take it up a level from there. And I want to encourage you to not just give thanks when you're about to feast, but I want you to give thanks when you might be in famine. I want to encourage us to give thanks this week when we wake up and when we go to bed. I want to encourage us to give thanks when we have a hard day at the office or someone criticizes us. Give thanks for the Lord because in the midst of those times, he is testing us to say, child, where's your heart? And then he's lovingly coming alongside us by his comforter to comfort us and discipline us to make sure our heart is with him. I want to challenge us to make these times of Thanksgiving rich this week and to do them more often than just at dinner time. And so, dear church, as you spend time in prayer this week, let's give the Lord thanksgiving for our daily sustenance, our daily breath, our daily testing and daily discipline, and our daily redemption. And if you're not a follower of Jesus Christ in here today, I want to try and speak to you for a second. There is one provider for you, and deep in your heart and in your soul, you know it. You know that there is a good God who's given you life and has given you breath. If you are a person who doesn't walk in a tight relationship with Jesus Christ, I want to encourage you today that today is the day of your salvation that you are here for the very reason of hearing that the Lord your God is your provider. He loves you dearly, and he has not only provided your daily bread, he has provided bread from heaven. And so all he asks of you is to step into relationship with him. And what that requires is a lot. It requires you to lay down your life and realize that he is God and you are not. But you can start that process today by simply where you're sitting saying, Lord, I agree that you are my provider, that you have redeemed me. This week, I want us in pain or prosperity to remember the Lord our God.